Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Hi, I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent Wingate. And on this extra issue of Homo Superior Creative Crush, we're interviewing Livio Ramondelli. Uh, Livio is the is an illustrator and writer who you may know from his regular work on IDW Publishing's Transformers comics with the Chaos storyline. And he also illustrated the entirety of the Transformers autocracy. Uh, you know, Livio came to our attention and now should be yours by his original science fiction series, The Kill Lock, which is the story of four robots who are linked together with a punishment such that if one of them dies, they all die. And it's supposed to ostensibly only be giving to uh, robots who deserve to die. Um, but, um, you know, the story is more complicated. <laughs> um, he's also been a part of other major sci-fi space universes through his illustration of Hidden Universe Travel Guide Star Trek and Firefly, a traveler's companion to the verse from Inside Editions, as well as cover art for Star Wars Legacy, Battlestar Galactica, and Pacific Rim. Uh, Livio, you know, welcome to our show. Mm -hmm. Is that a decent summation of your work? Or is there anything? <laughs> that is, that is. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Okay, so your sixth issue of the Artisan Wraith has dropped. Um, how you feeling? But uh, obviously, I think fans are loving it right now, us included. Nice, that's great to hear. Yeah, it's 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 been wonderful. Like I I made the sequel kind of in the start of the pandemic, so I was quarantined, and so I. Unlike the first series, which took like four years around all my other projects, you know, with the sequel, I knew that there was a fan base out there already, you know, so that was the one bright spot about the quarantine for me was like having the time to like make the sequel, you know, relatively short period of time, like about a year or so, and then have it out there. So yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful to have that universe be able to continue. When you get to the point where you've written, you know, these, you know, two collections of a kind of larger, you know, story, do you feel exhausted and you're like, I don't want to think about doing the next section yet, or are you already ready to go to, you know, add more? You know, I, I really love making it actually. Like I, I would love to have that be my full-time everyday job. I mean, I say that now, maybe cut to a couple of years from now and I'll need <laughs> something else, but um, like I am working on some other creator-owned projects now, just change of pace, but, but there is like, I've started writing a good bit of like what, what I think the third like Kill Lock series is going to be. And yeah, it's just a world I really enjoy making. And it, I had no idea if anyone would like it. So it's really cool to meet people who, who have enjoyed it. I think we really latched on to the fact that, you know, in this story, you're a writer and an illustrator. And maybe it's because we kind of glorify the, the singular vision idea of a creative. But what was that process like for you? You know, did, I'm sure it came with its own struggles. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was... I was definitely an illustrator for professionally for a long time without doing any writing, but I always liked creative writing, you know, since I was a kid, like I always really liked making my own stories and I hope to one day be able to do it. And I think finally, like after working on Transformers for so many years with Killock, I was like, okay, maybe I can try this. Like just to see if people like it, if they'll find it interesting and funny, like, but it was, it was really nice. To, it was really rewarding to find that people actually responded to, because I, I honestly had no idea. Like, you know, the first, opening page pages with the artisan and what he says that's kind of like a you're either on board with the story or not immediately yeah. right so it was really cool to see people respond to it but, but yeah in terms of the question about like writer and artist yeah that stuff was interesting for me because it was like the writing is kind of the most fun I would say for me because you know you can write the fleets engage right that's a one sentence yeah. thing right? and then the artist <laughs> has to draw that so like so even when you're choosing all the stuff that happens in the story you're still sort of you have to do it later, you know? And so there is a monotony to any amount of comics because I found that comics have a, there's one thankless aspect of comics that like movies and TV and novels don't have, which is if a character, if characters walk into a bar, you have to redraw the bar in every panel. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. It's not even like a cool action scene. It's just something that has to be done with a story and movies and novels, you don't really have that problem. So that's one aspect of comics. that's kind of like kind of hard. Do you think there were any um, <clears throat> segments that you you envisioned in your mind and then decided to underdo <laughs> because you knew it would be, oh, there's going to be a lot of action in this bar that has spikes on the walls. It'll be a barren planet yeah. instead. Yeah. It's the only bar in the galaxy yeah. with no drinks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've come to understand. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I've come to understand that why like a guy like Ridley Scott uses so much smoke and stuff in his movies because it's a really economical way to suggest scenery and stuff and mood and mm. you know so I tend to do that as well um but yeah I'm sure there's things like I, in issue two when they go to like the party planet in the first series like I'm sure I envisioned a lot more kind of background extras and stuff <laughs> and then when it comes to populating every single panel like I'm sure that stuff probably got like streamlined down a bit well I don't know because I think that when you get when we see that party planet and you know I don't want to get into the details of it yet but the it feels full it feels well, like yeah. oh this this is like a casino town this is like Vegas um you know when the ship takes off I don't need to see everybody that's burned I I know that they're there <laughs> oh good good yeah that, that was one thing I did work hard at was um like I've, I've been visiting Japan pre-COVID for these Transformers conventions and really fell in love with like Tokyo and everything. So there's things I saw in the architecture there that were like really cool and unexplained. So I put some of that in the party planet for like when the kid is walking around, there's kind of this unexplained giant face on a wall, like a sculpture yeah. face. Mm-hmm. That's something I saw in Japan with no explanation at all. Ooh. So I really liked that kind of stuff. And so I did try and work and kind of think about the backgrounds and make it kind of quirky and weird because that's that's how a real city is you know when you're creating these stories uh being both the artist and the writer it's what what usually is that process for like you uh is it is it writing first and then creating these characters or do you sometimes have a character already planned out um whether it be visually or even just personality wise or, or do you do it piecemeal where you're like oh this will be a fun scene to write and then illustrate and then you're like now i gotta get them to that scene <laughs> yeah oh that yeah both, both are true like um yeah, like initially it was like starting with a premise of like, I knew there was going to be, I didn't know it was going to be four, but I knew it was going to be a group of characters from very different walks of life that were thrown together. So very quickly I was like, okay, there's going to be a soldier. There's going to be like a really, you know, menacing soldier. Then there's going to be a really innocent, helpless kid. But then it's like, just because you have that concept, then you have to design them, you know? So like the Wraith, for example, like designing his face took a while because I, I knew I wanted something like very not human, you know, mm-hmm. but also be able to express emotions so it was kind of both it was like working on the story and the art at the same time but um but yeah I knew like for example I knew like what you were saying about getting them to the the right place like the middle part of Kill Lock was the hardest thing to write because it's like I knew what the ending was you know I knew they were going to end up on this planet and confront this other group but them tracking the axial and what her path was and even the chronology of how many years has she been gone that kind of stuff is yeah that was pretty tricky to work on yeah, I think the 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 design of the wraith is so interesting because as the as an early seed in the story, we have the wraithiest symbol, um, you know, that kind of acts as a contrast to the only wraith we've seen, which is this very symbolic face that is unlike any of the other robots we've you know experienced in this world. Um, how much were you thinking about? All right, each one of them has to have a symbol. How how important are symbols in general? And that you know, kind of conspicuously there aren't any symbols for the forgers yeah the forgers are definitely meant to be absent you know mysteriously absent like you get a glimpse of one of them one of their hands in the sequel but they're they're mm-hmm. definitely meant to be something that's going to be further explored later um with the wraith i knew i wanted to the first series i wanted it to be a relatively like self-contained story but the hope that you could expand it outward you know so with the wraith symbol i knew what that meant and like why he was so bothered by that symbol but I knew that was going to be a story for like the sequel, you know, is getting into what that was going to be. Yeah. As a warning to any listeners, we are going to get into now spoilers. <laughs> uh, so don't let that deter you from listening to the interview, but uh, know that there's a lot of great reveals that happen yeah. uh, that we're going to ruin and not feel bad about. <laughs> this is fun. This is my first time talking since the sequel's finished. So oh, I, really? oh, no, I can talk openly. Yeah. Um, so uh, kind of generally about the kill lock, which is your favorite character to write and which is your favorite to draw? I think my, it's hard to pick one, but I think my two favorites are the Wraith and the Artisan, because I think the Artisan is really funny to just, just to be able to have absolutely no filter. And I think that the fact that they're robots, he's able to say truly horrible things to people where if if they were human beings, I think it would be a little more uncomfortable what he says, but because it's robots, I think it, it gives a lot of leeway. Um, and then the Wraith, I like that he he's sort of a complete opposite in the sense that he's like a stone cold, serious science fiction warrior. And the artisan is almost making fun of the proceedings of the story <laughs> that they're in, you know? Yeah. So like those, those two are my favorites. I think to draw probably the Wraith, I really like 
kind of armored characters like that. Yeah. Dialogue wise, I could listen to you write uh, the artisan all the all the live long day. That's yeah. something. <laughs> it does have a very low key vibe to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, massive fuck boy who who yeah. always has the upper hand. Some some of the disses and I'm still using on people. They're very confused by it, but I it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Are you the rapiest? You know. Yeah. You just oh, go around awesome. and poke people and say, "Oh, this I'm I'm gonna." disarming you yeah <laughs> i love it that's that's all i could hope for it's great uh yeah i mean i think that the probably the the artisan is my favorite as a character but yeah. i think that the two of them kind of make this fun foil that is basically the basis of every cop drama <laughs> yeah uh, is there any chance we could get a uh you know a what if style spinoff where they go around <laughs> the galaxy trying to solve robot crimes oh that would be fun yeah yeah I know now that the series is like out there and expanding it out, it's it's a choice of like what to do next. Because one thing I want to do at some point is an anthology, like oversized issue of just other robots that have had the kill lock. And so like what their adventures have been. And some of them would be like, they'll die immediately. Like the second they get in the street, <laughs> they die. And I think I think the nature of the punishment allows this kind of like twilight zone. Like what happens this week with it, you know? So I would yeah. like to I mean, it's an interesting punishment because it feels like it could only exist with machines. Um, and yet I feel like there's some cruel human being who would create something that's just as devious. Like how much of the punishment itself relates to, you know, the way that we think of like our prison system or the ways that in, in which we view anyone who uh, commits a crime? Yeah, I think that was not like a direct statement on it but i think the notion that you're given this horrific punishment you're not actually killed like the axel says at one point like you know to survive this all you have to do is take care of each other but that's mm -hmm. kind of easier said than done when you're in a world with a lot of other factors and stuff so i wanted it to, to be a little bit of that where the forgers view it as this kind of mercy where they're like we're not just going to take a gun and shoot you we're gonna we're gonna link you and then you know best of luck you know and that's kind of how our our system works for a lot of people where it's like you know, you either have life in prison or you're released back on the streets with this, you know, tag that you were a criminal. And so good luck in the real world with a lot of opportunities after that, you know? So, and then I want to explore the, the fact that the system is sort of fundamentally broken. Like you'd argue ours is too. So you have things like mm -hmm. the axial with all the regret and stuff that she feels. And then the forgers getting increasingly worse with it, you know, like when it, when it started, the notion is they really were sentencing like murderers, but then by the end they're sentencing like the kid, you know? And so that creates this further fracture of their society with the sequel with what happens with the Wraith Legion where they're tired of enforcing this shit, that it's gotten so bad that it's like, you know, we didn't sign up to start killing children, you know? So I wanted, I wanted that, I wanted to kind of show a world that you're coming into it and it's already sort of getting ruined, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the the thing that I find so interesting about it is that there's this kind of laziness on the part of the foragers to just use it as a punishment for everyone. And like, <clears throat> I don't know how familiar you are with the American prison system, like history, but the incarcerating people in jail wasn't the most common way of punishing people. And that eventually in like England and early America, they just started doing it more and more because it was an easy way of doing it then every crime was punished in that way oh. uh, aside from minor ones. What was uh, the main thing they did before that? Well, they, they would try and, I mean, it would, you would have like penalties associated with like, so instead, you know, there might be debtors jail, which, you know, oh. was abolished at some point, but yeah. um, instead of putting people in prison, you would make them pay some garnished wages and they would never actually be locked up. Whereas now we might have, or, or if they stole something, they would have to, you know, recompense it, but they might not spend any time actually, you know, inca incarcerated. Interesting. Whereas yeah. there's an inclination now to either do both or do one if the person can't really pay. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly also with the, the kill off and, and real, real criminals, it's like when they come out, sometimes they're a lot worse than when they went in, you know, like just yeah. by the nature of living, like that's kind of what happens with the four group, the four enemy kind of robots they go up against at the first series where those characters were not awful to begin with but over their years of living with this thing they all got worse you know yeah and you have that nice contrast of the the group that was very mundane and they were they were very tame and and one of them goes to another planet uh, to 
just kind of live out his life and he'll die when he dies. And then they become the lesson the artisan has to teach uh, the kid. Like yeah. they, were, they, they were doing fine. They were yeah. respecting the system. <laughs> yeah. And this, this fucking guy shows up and burns their insides out. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what a tough scene. Yeah. They're like, not right now. Yes, yes. Oh. Talk about an additional so anthology. Tough. Please, I love you so much. Oh, God, it's happening. Oh, no. I know. Yeah. And then, and then the robot's like, I never thought I'd meet someone that would love me with this symbol. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> really wanted to drill yeah, it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, that was also when I thought about this punishment, that was one of the earliest things I thought of. Like, man, like, it's so horrible that you could just be sitting on a beach and suddenly catch on fire. Cause like, cause your friends got in trouble somewhere. It's like, that to me is the true horror of it. You know, it's um, it's kind of that age old, you know, that comedic trope of like two people being chained together and then having to figure out, but four yeah. <laughs> even worse. But what is the significance of the four together? And why, why did you come to that number? I, I debated that a long time. Like I knew, I knew it was going to be at least three because I thought if it's just one, if it's just two people, then it's the normal kind of contrast thing. You yeah. see three of them. I thought, okay, let's make it more complicated. And, but then I thought you can still have a majority, you know, two people can choose to do something and the third will kind of just get pulled along. But mm-hmm. I thought four made it like really kind of cumbersome where it's like, you know, you could have two that want to do one thing and two that want to do the other thing. So I thought, I thought four was like just enough for it to be, you know, so that's that's the real there's not like an in-world reason for it but that's kind of the storytelling reason yeah so how did you settle then on these uh four characters uh, was it that you know the the artisan and the wraith came first in your mind and then the kid is a foil like why is it important that he is a a child robot instead of you know an adult innocent that's a good question i think i wanted to really show someone who like he literally has like two memories before the kill lock begins for him yeah so he's so innocent to the world that he just doesn't understand anything so i liked that and i liked the labor in a way is kind of one of the more complex ones because he's like he's sort of good like he's good to the kid but then when he drinks he becomes like a really dark force especially for the sequel that we'll get into like so i thought that was also like the wraith and the laborer would get along to a point but then the Wraith would also really resent the laborer for being an addict and putting the kid in danger, you know? So I thought that made it, it's not just that the artisan is the bad one, the other three are good, you know? It's yeah. like the laborer is like, he's also a little bit of a gray area. And then the Wraith too is, he's nice to the kid, but if you fuck with him, he's like a really brutal, you know, killing machine. So. Yeah, whenever you get these, you know, the number four in a group, I can't help but think, oh, one of these is the Jerry, one is the George, <laughs> one is the Kramer, one's the LA, or one, oh, yeah. or they're, they're the Sex in the City. You know which one's the Samantha? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, probably the artisan would be Samantha. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then Miranda is probably the laborer. Yeah, that makes sense. The wraith, the wraith is Charlotte. No, actually, the kid would be. Would the kid be Charlotte? The kid is probably Carrie, though, right? Yeah, the kids yeah. like, you know, um, was I locked in with a kill or was the kill locked in with me? <laughs> <laughs> this writes itself. Yeah. yeah. So this first volume kind of ends in a bit of a cliffhanger and we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, what was the initial fan reaction to that? And is this initially how you sort of planned ending the first volume? Yeah, I always I always wanted it to be that if it was only ever those six issues, that that would be hopefully a self-contained ending where you know, you, you have enough of an idea of who the artisan is at this point of what he's going to do with that body, you know, that, and then he says, he'll take care of them. So hopefully you imagine that he will protect them and he will take out the forgers, but I always hoped I could expand on it, you know, and, and do a proper sequel to show what happens. So I think, I think initially people liked it, but then also people were like, really wanted to see more. I've heard a lot of people were like, we really want to see what happens next, which is, which is good. I mean, that's what I, you know, would like to happen. You created such a great world um, that, people did want to know a lot more. So it was nice to see this expanded into the second volume. Uh, so you brought in some new characters. What were your sort of inspirations for bringing new, newer people into the, the same world, basically? I wanted to, well, one, I thought for new readers, it would be good to have new characters as like an entry point. And then I also thought from the beginning, I always knew that the sequel would start with these sort of enforcement robots who clean up messes like what the first series was. That that felt like a really natural thing. It's like, well, who, who deals with this kind of stuff when it happens? And like, I, I liked so like the resolve and the lurk are like the main two of the sequel. I, I thought it was also interesting to show that they've had a giant history before you meet them. So 
you know, the lurk is sort of falling apart mentally and the resolve is the one keeping things going. So, but they're hiding that from the forgers. So, you know, she's now tasked with this huge mission and the forgers are unaware of how like precarious things are with the lurk. So I thought that was kind of hopefully an interesting dilemma. And then also I thought it would be good to show someone who's had the kill lock be able to really threaten the axial, you know, like really like, listen, like, you know, I felt my insides burn on fire because of you and I lived through that. I thought that was a kind of a more interesting angle to add to the axial from the first series. What about the 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 Wraith Legion? Uh, you had the Envoy, the, um, oh gosh, their names are slipping for me. No. Oh, the Viscount and- The Legion. Viscount and yeah. the Zenith, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you pick those, those three, uh, one by land and one by air and sea? <laughs> I thought, well, I knew, because from the first series, the Wraith has the three eye slits, you know? And I was yeah. like, with their culture, I thought, okay, everything sort of starts from this very crude basis of three. So- their ships have the same eyes. And then I was like, what if there's a triumvirate of leadership, you know? And it just made sense to me that you'd have the leader and then you'd have ground and then air forces like that. I felt like that kind of covered because they're sort of like a, they're not like a primitive army, but they're not a really advanced, super high tech army. So I was like, yeah, that's basically all they would need to yeah. you know, gas. They're so, every branch of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like they don't really, they don't really need an undersea army or anything. So like, and then um, I, that was definitely something I really want to get into is like, what is the Wraith Legion leadership like in the sequel? So like, that was something I was really happy to get to do. Did you intend for, because I'm obsessed with the, 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 um, the, the font that the Wraith speaks in, uh-huh. that's this kind of like Gothic, uh, you know, romantic uh, speech. And then you, you see the Legion Zenith and it is cap- it's like a capitalized version of it where he's constantly screaming. Yeah. Uh, for you, was that intentional? Was there like a comedic element you wanted to add? Because I just thought it was so funny that there's this, you know, monstrous guy who I guess has like James Earl Jones voice <laughs> screaming at everyone all the time. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I didn't intend it to be screaming. I intended for it to be bigger, like more bold than the Wraith. Like in my, in my mind, he's not screaming. He's just really loud. Like he, or like, he's not yelling. He's just a very, James Earl yeah. Jones is a good Commanding example. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was also like, I wanted to differentiate him from the Wraith too and the other ones. So it's like, yeah. cause like I can tell them apart, but I honestly didn't know if people in the audience would be able to, cause it is, it is asking a lot to, you know, there's no human faces. They're all the same color. So I was hoping like a different font would differentiate him, but also make him like, this is the top guy. Yeah, I liked how the the envoy and the viscount have these different styles of speaking that become very clear that they are not that not all the wraiths think the exact same way the wraith does. That is that's a that's a weird thing about him. Uh, yeah. the rest of them are able to parse and, and work through their their religious philosophy in other ways, even if they're all still you know kind of zealots. Yeah. And then also I thought like, cause he's a grunt too. He's not like a quote special one. He's just one of the many anonymous ones that it's like, you know, the triumvirate are really pretty high above him. Like, like Legion Envoy is like the guy that trained him to fight, but he would have trained like thousands of them. You know, it's not that there's anything special about our race. It's just that we know him from the first series, but to their army, like Legion Zenith views him as, as valuable because he cares about all of them. But yeah, the Wraith doesn't really have a position of any kind of real importance in their army. Well, you included, I think, what was a surprisingly tender moment. Um, the, the the wraith has been returned to the fold um, after the artisan is kicked out of his body. And they it's this huge panel where, you know, these wraiths are hugging each other. Yeah. Uh, did you expect to have that kind of, you know, brotherly love or tribal nature when you were kind of starting out with thinking about the Wraith Legion or is that something that only came in, in when you needed to flush out these characters I, I I always knew that was going to be there because like in the first series when he has to kill another Wraith he's so bothered by that I mean he just destroys him and he has to do that so I always knew that you know they were like his family so even though he's lost them they've also kind of lost him so when he comes back they get to kind of reunite like there's sort of a there's definitely a Klingon aspect to the Wraith Legion where it's like they're yeah. badass warriors, but they really love each other too. And there's like, there's that, that, that angle. See, so yeah, I, I always, I always knew. I and mean, even the way the Wraith is like the way he is with the kid, he's very like loving and protective 
but yeah. like, don't, but don't mess with them. It's kind of. Did the, you intend to make me cry a lot in this volume? Because no. you sure is hectic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Well, it was uh you feel a lot in the the first volume but this one in particular between those moments and then um the relationship between the resolve and the lurk i think are really prevalent where you didn't necessarily get that in the first one um oh, what what was that sort of you sort of want to say almost like a romantic relationship could be perceived as um was that something important to incorporate in this story that's a good question i think one thing i was surprised by with the the response to the first series was a lot of people told me like in a good way they were they felt pretty emotional it's so, like when the kid gets impaled mm -hmm. they were really truly bothered by that and so I felt like I could lean more on that in the second one and you know I could really like I wanted a loving relationship between like the resolve and the lurk from the beginning and then yeah. make you hopefully worry about their safety because you know if you've read the first series you know what they're going after so so yeah I, I think I definitely wanted to lean more into into the emotion of the world because that's something that it meant a lot to me working on it but I didn't know if the audience would like it so it was like it was really cool to to see that people responded to it. So, uh, you know, with respect to the resolve and the lurk, what led to the memory loss choice uh, for the cloaking tech? And did, did this perfect purposefully exist as a metaphor for something like Alzheimer's? It's it, not so much a direct, I mean, it, it certainly is, you know, obviously it is like Alzheimer's, but it's not like a direct kind of commentary on it. I just thought it was an interesting, like give, give a robot a really powerful weapon, like cloaking but then it drains you. And it's also further showing how kind of horrible the forgers are because in that sixth issue, you see that the, the Lark was actually a really gifted kind of unfinished. He was really pretty smart. So they put him in this special program and he ends up not dumb, but he certainly ends up more diminished than he, he was, you know? So, and I thought that um, I've had a couple people who did have to deal with parents who have Alzheimer's and they remember how sharp the parent was and how the parent taught them. And now things have sort of swapped. And so I liked that dynamic for the resolve where it was like, he was her teacher, but now she really has to kind of, you know, make sure he can tie his own shoes basically. Yeah. I mean, so with a character like the resolve, it's someone who has been, who has already committed a crime that's heinous enough to get the kill lock, uh, has the kill lock triggered, survives it, and then goes through a process of augmenting uh, their body in order to become even stronger and is now this extraordinarily powerful assassin. What is it that the Lurk sees that needs protection still? Why does he, why does he seem so dependent on, on you know the idea that he's got to protect her some in some way? Oh, you mean by by worrying about her in the future? Yeah, I think it's not it's not so much a physical worry. I think it's more an emotional like he doesn't want her to be doing this job alone kind of thing. Where like I wanted to show their sort of their kind of family life when they they sit and they like they just sit by the lake together you know i wanted to show that, that when they're not killing people that's what they do yeah it was and their so netflix was, and chill moment i yeah, feel like yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah so and i just thought like you know it's kind of like two cop partners or whatever it's like when one of them leaves or retires it's like a breakup or something you know it's you really are alone with this person who you've spent more time with than probably your own family so that's i think that's what he's really worried about is it's not so much like a physical threat to her it's more just the emotional like being alone so how does, um, you know, with the resolve, I don't know if, she, uh, if this character explicitly gets referred to as she in the story, but there does seem to be some relationship or I guess gender comes through sometimes and other times it's not as transparent. And, you know, it's weird if you're making a one, if you try and make a one-to-one -one parallel between humanoid robots and humans, there are characteristics that just don't transfer over. But I'm yeah. curious, how much did you think about tying gender into the characters? You know, is it cast and role based? Um, you know, what what did it mean for you to have certain characteristics included and not others? That's a great question because you know, in a world of robots, the concept of gender is really like, like why? Like technically, they don't really need to refer to themselves as anything. They can be like number seven, number four, or whatever, right? Yeah. But I thought mm -hmm. I thought it really kind of gave them more personality to be she, her, or they. And like, and then also you do see that they have relationships. You know, you see the robot that dies on the beach that he clearly was in a relationship with this other robot. I thought that I really wanted them to just, them to just be more human in general. So that just felt like something that was, you know, something I wanted to put in there. But then in terms of physical appearance, like one thing I was committed to with the resolve is that in the first series, the axial looks 
pretty human. I don't know if I would even do that again this time. I probably would have made her a little bit more robotic. And so I wanted the resolve to be like basically RoboCop, like, no, you know, that's the face you get, you know, there's almost nothing, nothing female, traditionally female, whatever you want to call it about her. And that was very intentional, you know, but, um, but yeah, it's an evolving thing too, with this world of like, what, like how much of that to put in, because there's like, I like to have diversity and representation in there, but in a machine world, it's like, what does that look like? You know, how close to, how close to people, modern people can you get, or do you want to get? So that's, that's something I remember, for example, like on the, the party plan on Rackus, initially I was going to make it more like Vegas. So there was going to be quote, like hot robots around, mm -hmm. but then I was like, one, I think we've seen that already. And then two, <laughs> yeah. I, thought it, I thought it was like way more interesting. If you're not quite sure, like it seems like there's sex and stuff going on, but you're not quite sure what you're looking at. And yeah. that to me felt way more like interesting and more unique to this world, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answered the question, but that was <laughs> Kind of my, no, 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 my yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, we, uh, it was a question about the nature of gender, and you got into sex bots. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the axial as well, because um, I think as a character journey, she's got one of the more interesting ones. She starts out as uh, you know, really a believer in the kill lock, and kind of thinks she's perfected the system starts to work on trying to uh, come up with a cure for it. And for that is basically exiled. Yeah. Uh, then she comes to discover that the kill lock is being used to, um, you know, tag people who don't really deserve it. So she's now created something that she really regrets. Uh, then uh, in trying to bring salvation to someone who was innocent, she makes the problem a lot worse by giving away the location of this obsidian uh, artisan. How much were you thinking about, you know, the nature of like scientific progress and achievement? Like there are, there are great figures like Einstein with nuclear weapons or Nobel with, you know, dynamite, um, how they created something and then they come to really regret it. Was, was that weighing in on this character or what did you think about that? Yeah, that definitely was for sure. That's why there's a, a scene in the sequel where she watches the kill lock chamber burning, mm -hmm. where she's like enjoying watching her entire legacy go up in flames because she's so horrified by what she what she made. And I've always thought of that, the guilt of any of those, the real people who invented this kind of stuff where it's like, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And they might even be worse than my intentions with it. So yeah, like Yaxia was interesting because for as little as like, she's not in the first series very much, but her backstory is by far the most complex of all the characters. Like the amount of like weird journey she goes on. Like I, I thought about getting into that more of like when she leaves the home world and she goes to like Rackus, like the party planet. And then we don't even see her there, but we know that's where she was going. Like she basically made like a pleasure bar there. So I was like, well, what was she doing? Was she just indulging herself and like her guilt by like living this phase of her life? And then she becomes almost like a, like a monk that wants to teach the universe later when she's on this bombed out planet after. So I, I like that, that idea too, that she's lived this really full life with many chapters by the time that the characters we know even, even meet her, you know? And like, and she's, she's arguably the most kind of morally gray because she's basically feeding kill lock sentences to these evil robots to, to kill. So they don't do worse shit. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack with her. That's why I wanted it. I wanted when the resolve shows up in the second one to really kind of like choke the axial and be like, Hey, you know, you've heard a lot of people with this thing. And, you know, so it's yeah. very human to, to do all of this and try to do some good and then basically just make everything 20 times worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think that that's the, like, that feels like society too, where it's like someone has a good idea and it just goes off the rails. The more people, you know, lean into it and the more time goes by podcasting for example yeah. <laughs> it's true so you are bringing up a bunch of different themes obviously one of the big ones that kind of sticks out is addiction uh -huh. um uh what sort of drew you towards obviously alcoholism and then we see gambling as well in there what why did you want to incorporate those themes with these specific characters i wanted it to be really human kind of relatable so I didn't want it to be that he's addicted to some crazy like science fiction drug we've never heard of, but the idea of a drinker, it's like, we all know people who drink too much, you know, and, and his type of addiction, I wanted it to be, he's not like super violent or like clumsy when he's drunk. He's just kind of dark, which 
that to me is like, I've been around a couple people like that. Like that's the most disturbing kind of alcoholic to me where it's like, you're, you're not, you're just kind of talking to a different person than they were an hour ago, you know, and not in a fun way. So I, I wanted that. And I thought like that also gave the labor more depth to me too, that when he's not drinking, he's actually pretty like loving toward the kid and stuff. But, but there was like a selfishness to him, which certainly like if we talk about the end of the sequel really kind of explodes about what he's, what he's capable of. But, um, but yeah, I thought, I thought like, you know, gambling too, in the second one, I was like, is gambling too human? But I thought, I, I think it helps to just really ground certain things in just very relatable human terms, you know? So, I mean, maybe this is the, this is the point of making them robots, but, <laughs> you know, are they, are the addictions themselves, you know, pseudo directives from the original creators, if those exist, uh, like, cause it seems to be that the issues associated with this kind of addiction come from lower, ca lower cast models. Is it part of like forger design or is that something that should be just kind of left open to interpretation? Yeah, I think it's not so much design. Like I've, I've gotten that question of like, you know, how can a robot be addicted to something? Would it be programmed to be addicted? And I was like, I don't think it needs to be explained that way because I was like, because people, certain people can have a drink and be totally normal. Other people get addicted to heroin and there's not always a direct correlation of why it happens, you know, people's physiology or whatever, their background. So I think with the labor, it's just kind of like anybody. It's just, he just really got addicted into something. And you know, the artisan says to him in the beginning of like the first issue, he's like, you know, I can have a drink and just one drink and walk away. He's like, you're not capable of doing that. So, so I wanted it to be, to be that like the kind of going back to the idea of like the reason they're robots is that some of the stuff would be so uncomfortable with people. Like I, I, like, if you just think about like what the artisan says to the kid, if that was a, you know, a man talking to a little boy, I mean, that's just like, that's pretty horrible. And I think it would take a lot of the kind of fun out of the series. Mm -hmm. but um but i still want it to be you know recognizable themes do you envision other addictions other uh type of addictions existing in this world i mean kind of opened it up to basically any human addiction could yeah. possibly be yeah and they seem to have yeah. some form of blood in general so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think there is other addictions too that would be that would be fun to get into basically anything any kind of addiction in the real world i think could could work in the kill up so with uh, one character we haven't talked about yet is the phage. Uh, and I thought it was a very interesting character design to make uh, this monster bright red and then very clearly the most animalistic in structure relative to any of the other characters. You know, what went into that? Um, how did you come up with this, this, you know, terrible, terrible beast? Yeah, I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted something that was like, uh, like a machine horror from like an, uh, the previous era. So I liked, I had this idea early on that when the Legion first met him or it, whatever you want to call it, that it was wearing this almost like a coyote face, which I thought that was really kind of weird and unsettling, like a machine coyote kind of just sitting there. And so I knew that I, I liked too that in the, the world of Kill Off, it is that there was organic life at one point that's been wiped out. So that's why there's bones everywhere, you know, but there, there was, there was kind of dinosaur like animals, but the phage or the rapius is the, the thing that killed that era. So it still wears like the, it remembers what those things look like, even if no one else did, which I thought gave it more of a, like a very long kind of history of this thing remembers like the prior era and interacting with, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, and then, yeah, I, and I thought it was creepy too, the kind of shape-shifting aspect that it, it sort of mocks the Wraith Legion with the, the face that it has, but then yeah. there's a, a moment where it looks back to the kid and the artisan and it shows like the coyote-ish kind of face. I thought that was pretty unsettling. It's jarring in the best possible way where it really does make you, you're scared of it, honestly. It's great. Good, good. good. So, I mean, I think of uh, maybe it's Deep Space uh, or other, or maybe uh, uh, The Legend of the Ten Rings, Shang-Chi. Mm -hmm. uh, these monsters that call out from a distance and draw people in uh why was that power important to corrupting um the 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 legion zenith i thought it was i wanted it to be that basically the forgers and the wraith legion have had this arrangement for a long time where the forgers will keep this thing sealed on the planet and 
the Wraith Legion, you know, in return for that, will basically do the bidding of the Forgers when they when they kind of feel, when they agree on something. But meanwhile, the Forgers are creating and creating all these other millions of robots, and their civilization is expanding all these planets. But that's creating more and more problems for the Wraith Legion to clean up. So it was the notion that the Legion is just exhausted from having to do all this for so long. Like, like when the Resolve first talks to the Legion Envoy and Viscount um, for help, Envoy's like, yeah, God, they just, they never, they never have enough help from us. Like, it's just never ending. And so with the kind of the whispers reaching the zenith, I wanted it to be that by this point, Legion Zenith is so tired and has like, you know, he's lost, you know, some of his troops that he's just looking for a way to save the Legion at this point. So, and that's what corrupts him, which I thought was kind of tragic for him is that he really is looking out for his Legion, that he's going to agree to so it's, it's, I also wanted it to be like, you're not quite sure who is truly to blame. You know, is it, is it him for deciding to take the Legion back to the home world? Is it the Forgers for pushing the Killock to start sentencing children? You know, it's sort of the, from both sides, their arrangement falls apart. But that's, that is what, you know, what dooms everyone is that Legion Zenith starts believing what the Phage, the Wraithius tells it, tells him that if, you know, if you let me go, your Legion can go off and I won't mess with you, which is not true. But yeah. Yeah, you leave the story in an interesting spot where we've kind of jumped to, uh, yeah, everyone lost. Uh, and I'm sure that you're going to go back in, in the third and kind of talk more about how this arrangement came to be. But do you see yourself going back and, and uh, you know, with the possibility of doing, you know, prequel type stuff where, you know, more of your anthology, anthologies maybe have how could this possibly really happen? What were the details of it or um, anything like that? So you mean a, like a prequel showing like what led up to their society when we find it in the kill? Yeah. How, how, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's my desire to see prequels, but uh, how did, how do we get the, the Republic? How do we get the Jedi uh, oh. you know, becoming corrupt with the Republic? That's a good, that's a good question. Like I have thoughts about that. I think we just depend on, you know, what, if there's a good story there, because one thing I've, I've kind of worried about is I felt like if I were to do a prequel and, you know, you don't have the artisan, you don't have that kind of sense of humor, like does it, does it lose something, you know, because I think the Killock is still, the story is mainly about these main four characters and then the new ones that show up in the sequel, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it would be, it'd be interesting. Like I, I do, I, I have to kind of just see where it goes, honestly. Like I have a really strong idea of what the third series is and where that one resolves itself, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, so when, when, going back to the ending, I guess, um, the world is desolate. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was already pretty bleak, but it's gotten a lot worse. Mm -hmm. um, why did you pick this place for each of the characters to go? Um, you know, what can we look forward to on their journeys? Like I having, be having the axial now be this kind of crazy uh, wandering priest uh um you know the the artisans now paired up um yeah oh actually that's something uh that's the kid at the end that's not the axial oh, oh, oh that oh, is oh. yeah yeah the character design for it's so awesome oh thanks yes the idea is that the kid is now an adult oh my god i just got yeah. my mind blown <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i yeah i don't know i don't know it's, it's interesting i don't know if that confuses other people but uh yeah that's the kid so the idea is that it's so far in the future the kid is now looking after other unfinished robots but um yeah so were there any elements when you were writing this when you came with the first volume were you envisioning it to be in multiple volumes were you envisioning it obviously you said you had plans for other stuff but is this where you sort of pictured the second volume ending yeah, I knew I wanted to do a, a big time leap forward, and I wanted to have where you get left off in the past is the kid and the artisan marooned in the desert, mm -hmm. where things have finally turned, where the kid is now able to kind of take care of the artisan a little bit. And then I wanted to leap really far into the future, because one thing I like about robots is that you can jump like a thousand years or whatever, and, you know, they can still be alive, which is something that human stories are sort of limited by sometimes, but mm -hmm. um, unless we're Lord of the Rings or something, but like... Uh, but, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. And also just to, to show the kid as an adult, I thought was hopefully kind of a, a striking kind of ending to it. But yeah, um, that was one of my favorite parts when I, I <laughs> you totally knew what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But which one of those is the robot? Well, it was nice that you were trying to keep those spoilers for yeah. the listener. <laughs> uh, 
So because we are all greedy people and we want to see more of this, um, do you picture this actually being adapted in some sort of way? And what in a perfect world would you sort of see that as maybe live action TV, movie, animation? What 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 would sky's the limit? You have unlimited oh, I mean, it would be it would be amazing. <laughs> there, I mean, who knows what happened, what will happen? There was some talk of that, like I like without getting the specifics. So I don't know if it'll still move forward at some point, but I mean, certainly like live action CGI would be the best. I would love. It would be to awesome to see in live action. Yeah. One of my friends is, um, uh, he owns a creature shop. And so he works on the Mandalorian. They do a lot of effects, but for fun, he rendered the Wraith and the Artisan in full 3D texture and everything. Awesome. And they look fantastic. I didn't have anything to do with it. He just did it for fun, but they look fantastic. So it's like, it would be really cool to see that, like, you know, in a serious thing. Yeah, that would be that would be my preference is like, and just to get it in front of more people, you know, whatever, whatever medium they, they find it in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think seeing it in live action TV could be very fun because, you know, we have the contrast now of like Star Trek versus Star Wars. And in the Star Wars universe, there's a black and white morality. And in Star Trek, you know, the, the trade federation is always on the side of good but yeah. in this universe, all the characters are a little bit grungier. Their, their morals are a little bit shadier. Yeah. Um, and that can be really fun to see. Yeah, I think like, I think that's one thing I really like about the universe is that the morally gray aspect of, of kind of every character, except for maybe the kid. Everyone else yeah. really has some, some darkness to them and, some, and then some positivity and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that would, I would love to have it out there. And it's, it's funny how quickly things change. I don't know if you guys are watching... Um, Lord of the Rings or House of the Dragon, but I cannot mm. believe how much money is on the screen of those shows. Like, why? It's insane. Like, yeah, they make they make the first Game of Thrones look like a low budget kids play. Truly, like, yeah. And so I'm like, so now I think you could do more CG. Now, granted, they're spending a shitload of money on those things, but I think you could do that. You know, you could do more of a C, like a CGI heavy show where all the main characters are, are digital and do it cost effective. Hopefully. Levio, I'm gonna guess that you probably enjoy sci-fi. Um, so what? <laughs> yeah, there's a subtle behind me. A subtle. <laughs> uh, what would you say some of your uh, biggest inspirations are uh, for this series, as well as like all all the type of work that you've done? Yeah, um, kind of the, the traditional like Ridley Scott. I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. Like I have a Blade Runner poster right there, and like that his his view of the world. You can see I think a lot of inspiration from Blade Runner in Kill Lock, the way it's kind of lit and stuff, and you know how believable like all his environments feel like like you like in gladiator really feels like they're in a sandy roman desert and i yeah i really try and bring that in um yeah in terms of sci-fi like star wars star trek i grew up like loving all that and then and then transformers too before i worked on it professionally like the original animated movie had a big impact on me because there was close-ups in that movie of like megatron's face all like cracked and stuff and that that level of weathering to robots and stuff that had a huge impact of like how I approach drawing them later on, where I, I like kind of like the Wraith. I like him feeling like worn and weathered and everything. Okay. So in, we have to do the nerd thing in a typical fight, Wraith Legion versus Transformers, who wins? Oh, interesting. Um, I would say that, oh man, would the entire Legion versus like all the Decepticons? Well, yeah, I see. That's where you get into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shit. Um, I think the Decepticons lose for sure, but Optimus Prime and Fam uh, will come yeah. through <laughs> with the power of friendship, and they'll find a way. You That's can't true. break armor with a laser gun, but you can break it with a lot of heart. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll go. I'll go with that. I agree. So we uh, we like to end with just a rapid fire of a bunch of questions, where okay. just anything that comes to mind. Um, so and then we'll say if you're right or wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, in terms of comics, what are you currently reading? Oh man, I'm so bad with this question because I tend to read, <laughs> I tend to read older stuff a lot lately. You know, so what was I rereading recently? Like, like Dark Knight Returns and like Watchmen. Like I, I reread those a lot. So I feel so bad getting that question because it's never like <laughs> lately. It's never anything new. The classics. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was a little bit worried that you might have mentioned something that's really modern and then ask us if we've read it and we would have to reveal that we hadn't. <laughs> oh yeah. What's well, funny too, like working in comics is like, I don't know what it is, but I, I read a little bit less than I used to before I get into comics. I used to have like a weekly, like, I don't, I don't know if you guys, if you're reading the same you did yeah. back in the day, but yeah, I, I read a little bit less now, which is a shame. 
Do you think that that like, is it, is there any part of it that it's because you're worried about the intake that like you're reading all these other writers and, and illustrators and that that might feed into your own work too much? Yes. That's a great point. Like I, that's one reason that I haven't watched a lot of love death robots on Netflix because mm-hmm. I don't, it's already close enough. Like I, I don't want any- <laughs> yeah. like, like the ones I'll watch is something that has nothing to do with a robot, you know, yeah. like, just to get it away from like my, my world there, because that's my biggest nightmare too, is that there's so much content these days that if you write something, you could accidentally write something close to what's out there and have no oh, idea. Yeah. You did that. So like there's stories of James Cameron on avatar getting sued like hundreds of times because there's like little things in it that like, he, like Fern Golly, like that's a, like a big one. Right. There's like yeah. little, little <laughs> character names or something that I don't think he was, was aware of, but he's getting sued. So I'm like that, that would be horrible. Uh, favorite Marvel superhero, DC superhero. Oh, if you're Marvel, uh, probably Spider-Man and Batman. Yeah. So what about you guys? Uh, favorite video game. Oh, oh man. Um, or something you like. Yeah. yeah do you I play like... video games? This might be a good preamble question. I do. No, I do. Uh, Mass Effect. I loved. Um, yeah. Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter when I was younger. And then the X, the X-Men, I know you guys are obviously X-Men fans. The X-Men arcade game. I love that. Oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> have you gone back and played that recently? Because it I is have. fucking hard. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, no, I love that game. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, novel might be a little bit of a, a reach <laughs> if you're not reading anything right now, but. Oh, favorite novel? You know, I actually am reading um, Heat 2, the Michael Mann, like sequel to Heat. Oh yeah. Like, I actually just started, started that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And the last food. Oh, something super boring, like a sandwich, like a tuna sandwich. <laughs> I mean, I, we don't want to knock sandwiches. Uh, yeah. no, I'm a, they I, make I, up 30% yeah. of our listener base. So <laughs> we don't stand by those uh, ideas. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, is there anything you have so much great stuff coming up um, and out currently? Is there anything you want to plug? Uh, just to, for everyone who's listening, if you enjoyed it, like I'm on Instagram, leave your Twitter, like that's where I announce all like new stuff I'm working on. Nice. So, uh, especially Instagram, I post there basically daily. So, you can uh, see a bunch of Livio's uh, great work. Uh, I'm a very big fan of the the Star Wars oh, illustrations you've done so good, yeah. uh, at LivioRemondelli.com. Um, you can also see some fun commissions and um, and additional Transformer stuff. It's a, It's just great to look at. Nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. With that, uh, we've been Homo Superior. You can find us on Twitter at Homo Superior X or on Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast. Thank you again, Livio. And uh, we'll see you all on our regular Friday episodes. Bye. Bye. Bye.